Welcome back to a very special episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute with the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, Education Manager with the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. Well, if you caught our last episode with Tim Donnelly of The Resilient, you heard an incredible story of how music has been essential in overcoming the physical and emotional trauma of war. This was such a moving conversation, and it was a dramatic example of how music can uplift and transform the lives of people. In today's Today's episode, we're going to broaden this conversation and explore how music connects and serves us all. In, in just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by the Kansas City Symphony's own music director, Michael Stern. Michael is a very passionate advocate for music around the globe, but here in Kansas City, he leads an orchestra which is truly steeped in the culture of service through music. And guys, this manifests itself in a variety of ways, and some of those are more obvious than others. We've spoken many times about our wonderful children's concerts, family concerts. We've talked about our free happy hour chamber music series, which is really great. But all those concerts are just the tip of the iceberg of this idea of service through music. Uh, Many people may not realize that nearly every Kansas City Symphony musician participates in a program that we call the Community Connections Initiative, or as we like affectionately call it, CCI. Uh, This program provides support for all of our musicians to venture beyond the walls of the Kauffman Center where we normally perform and bring music directly to the people of Kansas City. So last year, um, the symphony musicians performed 173 events through our Community Connections Initiative. And like you said, it included events um, all around our community, in schools, uh, community centers, hospitals, Um, elderly care facilities, and even in prisons. We go absolutely anywhere that music can serve. Do you guys have any favorite places that that we've been able to visit? Well, I mean, I... For as part of my job, uh, since you and I, Stephanie, work together on so many educational concerts, I love getting out into as many schools as possible. I try to visit as many high schools and middle schools throughout the year and and work with bands and orchestras. Lately, I've been doing that a lot through Zoom, of course, with social distancing. Um, but being able to just go out and work with the kids and and work with the teachers as well. Um, that's one of my favorite things to do. I've also spoken at a lot of Rotary Clubs, many, many <laughs> Rotary Clubs throughout the Kansas City area. And that's always cool, too, because you get to really get a feel for each neighborhood within our great city and get to know the people that are doing so many great things for the community in other ways besides music. Well, I had a really amazing experience, actually, just a couple of months ago. We had a side-by-side event where musicians from the Kansas City Symphony played with the students of a wonderful program I've been deeply involved with for a long time called Harmony Project KC. They provide free music education and instruments to underprivileged children in the city and really do a lot for those kids and their families. Really incredible experience that I loved and I get so much enjoyment out of doing those kind of activities and uh, seeing how music is having a real impact on people. It's great to be in the hall and perform when we can. We, of course, miss that now, but we love all the things we do outside of the hall as well. How about you, Stephanie? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I think that the Kansas City Symphony does so well is we reach a really broad audience um, age-wise. So there are a couple different activities that that I've been able to be a part of just even as a fly on the wall and watch how they work. One kind of a series that we've done is at the Children's Place here in Kansas City, which um, provides just all sorts of services and care and education for children who are um, 
victims of trauma or domestic violence or just, you know, need need a safe place to be. And we've gotten to really get in there and, and, you know, just be kind of a safe presence for those kids. I know Mike has, has participated in that. And um, it's a really small group of kids, but being able to be there and just be a part of that with their wonderful staff and um, perform for the kids and, you know, get a little silly and sing some songs has, has really been a, a fun thing we've gotten to do. And the other thing um, is we've, been fortunate to participate and partner with um, the Kansas City Memory Cafe, which is a wonderful um, organization that does events and provides services and kind of entertainment and activities for adults with dementia um, and who are suffering with, with, you know, memory issues. And so we've been able to perform concerts, but I know lots of organizations have participated with them in, in bringing different types of programming to a more elderly audience. And, uh, you know, we we're just lucky that we've been able to do that as well. One of the things that's been really interesting in this time too, is figuring out how we can continue some of these partnerships you know, even during this time of social distancing, we have to be apart. So a lot of musicians have been doing things like teaching workshops uh, for kids or doing uh, even live uh, performances and presentations for people around the community. You know, we still have musicians doing work with Harmony Project, with uh, Youth Symphony KC. We're even trying to figure out how to get some recordings uh, to Lansing Prison, uh, where we've had a partnership for a long time. So as much as we can be creative about keeping keeping this work going, uh, we're really doing it as much as possible, even still, which I think is fantastic. Well, we certainly look look for ways all the time to serve the great Kansas City community with music. And speaking of service through music, this year we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of Michael Stern's father, the great violinist Isaac Stern. And I know it was most important to Michael to recognize the legacy of arts advocacy and the connection of people and cultures through music, which Isaac, his father, achieved in his own right, and which he inspired in Michael and so many of the world's greatest musicians, and which is so vital to our world today. Uh, I'd like you all to join me in welcoming our very special guest for this episode, our fabulous music director, Mr. Michael Stern. Welcome, Michael. Hello, guys. Hi, Michael. Hello. It's so great to have you this week. You know, this year, as I mentioned, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of your father, and we got many of the concerts in that we wanted to um, with some really wonderful guest artists and friends of your father, but I know we had to cancel a lot of them as well, and so I'm glad that we get a chance today to talk about your father and his legacy. And and what first of all, what are you doing during this time of social distancing? How are you finding ways to continue to champion great music and what do you think your father would be doing if he was alive today during this time of social distancing? Well, like everybody else, I am social distancing, coming out of seclusion only to talk to you guys. Um, <laughs> I think, um, well, I'm, I'm really inspired, like I know all, all of you are as well, that our organization, both in terms of our community of musicians, but also um, as the, the standard bearer for music, in the community realizes that our responsibility and our contribution to our daily lives goes beyond what our concert schedule is. And I think that, in a sense, sums up what my father was about. I mean, he was first and foremost a performing musician. Um, and he always used to say that without that, he wouldn't have been the person he was and he wouldn't have been able to, to be uh, effective in the world. But for him, that was only the beginning. The concerts were only the beginning. And he felt deeply committed to the idea that 
both for young people and education and just for the idea. He always used to talk about the primacy of the arts in our lives. That was central to everything he did. So whether it was um, connected to, to his concert life or not, it was always really on the same track of bringing music into the world and making that case. So what would he do if he were here? Um, I, I don't think he would take the situation sitting down. He'd be on the telephone a lot. He did love to be on the telephone. So in terms of his connected, the interconnected network um, that he was so fond of cultivating, that would have been even more in play. Um, and with no travel and more time to reflect, he would come up with ideas. I know a lot of our colleagues, uh, since the, the daily grind of, of travel and work and rehearsals and, and business, so to speak, um, has changed so much, they have a lot more time to think about things that they wouldn't have before or to invent new projects. In the cans of some, it skews more to one than the other, and I think he certainly would have been... Um, fomenting stuff to do as he went along. That's something I've I've been just so blown away by in in our musicians but musicians everywhere is just the the creativity and the you know the willingness and the I mean the need I mean it's a need to be performing and to be sharing music uh, regardless of you know what the what the circumstances or where we can be like um, it uh, it's been really special to be able to watch our musicians get together and or not get together but our musicians to be able to put their their a different set of talents to use. So I, I, you know, I've thought about this a lot, obviously, as one of our musicians who's not able to uh, go perform right now. And I think, you know, for me, one of the incredible positives of all of this is it's it's given me, and I think a lot of musicians, a moment to think and to, uh, in a way, distill what you know what is truly essential about music, and you know what of that can we still put out there? And you know I've had conversations uh, with musicians and non-musicians both who who sort of wonder, well, what is what is the role of music right now? Why is this still important? But why why do you feel music is is so essential right now at this moment when people have you know economic difficulties, potentially you know fear of health concerns? Uh, dealing with uh, children who are out of school, uh, job loss—I mean, all these things. How does how does music rise in the list of those priorities so that we can we can take advantage of it? Well, I love that idea, but I think this sort of hits close to home for me in terms of what I've always believed. Even not only about the intrinsic necessity of of music in our lives, but also of how to be the best possible performer that you can be. Because, and, and my father used to say this all the time, whenever you go out to an audience, and, and certainly with the vanity of most conductors and the shameless posing of a lot of them, the, uh, the uh, idea that you should sort of reach outside yourself to get something is uh, misguided from the get-go. My dad always used to say, you have to bring them, meaning the audience, into you. And that starts with, first and foremost, your relationship with the music that you're playing. So in this time of isolation and social distancing, I think it's really interesting that a lot of people already are reflecting on this point. And I think for myself and for a lot of people that I talk to, it's, it's certainly true more and more. Music is what it is outside of everything else. And so 
as not only a force for good and service, but also as the artistic thing itself, it changes the way we not only hear the world and see the world, but it changes the way we are in the world. It changes you as a person, which is why it's so important to have that in children's lives from the earliest possible moment. And so if you walk out on stage believing it's just about the music, you will always give a better performance. And if, whether it's as a conductor relating to an orchestra, whether it's as a solo musician relating to an audience, whether you're in a chamber music group playing with one another, it's always about that. You bring people into this thing which you find so special. And so, yes, I absolutely salute all the creativity of musicians everywhere, and certainly in our band, who are really making an effort and putting out great stuff. But I think it's also because they're connecting to the music first and foremost, and remembering that we always first play for ourselves, right? We always find the connection that is important to us. And I think in terms of education, that is where really good music education starts, because you're not teaching a child to have a skill as much as you are empowering the child to have a voice. And mm -hmm. once that um, dynamic is established, the skill teaching comes after, right? It comes much more naturally. So speaking of um, finding your voice and, and connecting, playing for yourself and music for yourself first, I've found this time very helpful because as a conductor, and I'm sure you can relate, Michael, obviously we're so busy studying scores and conducting rehearsals and concerts, I have so little time to actually pick up my violin still and play in any capacity. Usually I'll pick it up to learn a part in a score, or I will um, just kind of practice, play around for fun, but I've had a lot more time to play my instrument, and that's been really therapeutic, and it's also been really helpful for me to reconnect in that way as a musician. Have you picked up your acts lately? Have you had time to to play around yourself? What have you been doing with, along those lines? I will confess I haven't done it a lot, but I had a few friends. We are all at the same age of reaching this milestone birthday, which is slightly depressing and middle-aged, but um, <laughs> for them, I made these videos. So there are, two, there are two things which are which are coming together in this time of social distancing. One is an obsession with all things technological and video editing-wise. So you've got, you know, my three best friends, Final Cut and Pro. And then you've got this <laughs> idea that you want to reconnect with, with your instrument. And so I, I've made sort of multi-image accompaniment. I, for one, a, a really good friend of mine who actually was an actor on, um, on a couple of really well-known known, uh, uh, shows recently. And, and he and I were best friends when we were in nursery and kindergarten, nursery school and kindergarten. And so when he turned 60, I made this video. I arranged Happy Birthday in some jazz setting. And I played five different parts with this, you know, the, the kind of video um, layout that's, being, that's so popular now. And I thought to myself, oh, well, you know, if I can do that, then I should play some scales. The other thing is that my daughters are both studying music. And when they, and my older daughter especially, has started uh, playing the oboe. So um, it inspired me to actually make sound and, and reconnect. And, and I get what you're saying, Jason, totally. Nice. Well, speaking of your, of your daughter, so do you find um, having a, a dad who's a music director for them and you having a dad who was the performer that he was, does that put any additional 
pressure or expectation or I don't know on on your kids? I mean, do you, did you feel that? Do you feel like your girls think that that that's there? It, it was totally a different situation because I asked for a violin when I was four, and I didn't really. I just you know I just wanted to be like him, and so I I couldn't remember a time when I wasn't playing. They actually have a much healthier view of the world <laughs> and um they have absolutely no hesitation or reservation of telling me what they think at any given moment and so there's no there's no pressure whatsoever it's it both of my kids um are 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 very musical and it's very sweet to see them you know find their musical being their musical voice in the world neither of them is going to become a professional there's zero pressure um for that um my my older daughter is is um you know she has perfect pitch and she taught herself to play the guitar and she plays the oboe and she's studying the piano and there's all that going on so no but you know you don't force kids you just allow kids mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. and um and the fact that they're happy uh doing the things with music i mean once in a while i'd like a little sometimes only sometimes a little more quiet in the house but well there's there's a lot of singing going on i think that's great though and like especially now i don't i don't know i know um mike doesn't have kids and jason has grown kids and for me right now there's so much technology happening all the time i mean even school is all through technology i mean they have to be looking at a screen to be doing what they're doing and then all my son wants to do is play minecraft when he's done going to school. So having something, I mean, you know, that they can come to, uh, um, my kids don't take any formal music lessons, but I mean, we have a a keyboard set up here in the room where I am, um, just an electric keyboard. And uh, it's amazing that now that we're home, those kids did not touch that keyboard for years. And then now that we've been home for two months, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I want to go try that out. Like I want to get that out. I think they're craving something non- digital or non-plug-in, you know? Well, I think that that could be true. I mean, I, I worry about how much screen time my kids have, but then, you know, that ship sailed and oh, we're yeah. not going to win the battle. So, no. and you're right, they need it for school. On top of that, um, my younger daughter requires an iPad just to read and she's an inveterate reader. And so with her visual v- vision impairment, she needs to blow up the font on the iPad. So you can't mm-hmm. tell her don't read books every two minutes because... You shouldn't be on the screen. But here's something which I would be curious to, to hear from all of you. I think one of the reasons that they're dealing with this social isolation uh, with less obsession of the politics or the future social ramifications that we do, obsessed by CNN and other news outlets as we are, is because for them, it's not completely normal. They want to go out and, their, and see their friends. But the idea of communicating via a screen is not, they, they've never known anything else. So mm-hmm. I think they would prefer not being cooped up in the house with their parents all the time. But I think that the idea of communicating with the world and knowing that you're not isolated from the world because of technology is fundamentally different than, than for some of us. So I think they're, they're, sure. that's, that's interesting. And that actually speaks profoundly to what we're going to do as musicians when all this is over. How is this? I cannot believe that we're going to be in this state forever, obviously. But I also can't believe that we're going to forget all the things that we've learned and all the 
new ways that we were forced to follow and then just have it, you know, go away. I think this is going to fundamentally change the way we live in a lot of ways. And we don't even know what those ways are yet. I will say that it, I totally agree with you, Michael, that they've grown up learning communication through a screen, through texting, through Snap, through everything else that they do. But what has been really refreshing for me, and this is one of those changes that you're talking about that I hope sticks with us, is that I've seen so many more kids outside playing, riding bikes, hanging around with each other in socially distanced ways, of course, but I've never seen so many young kids out playing. And that's what that's the way we grew up, of course. Our parents would kick us out and we'd go outside and play wiffle ball or do whatever for hours. And when it was dinner time, we'd get the whistle or whatever it was and we'd come back. <laughs> you know, that was a whole level of trust. And I know the world's different, of course, now too than when we grew up. But but just being able to go out and be a kid and play, I really hope that that aspect of, of this new norm sticks with us. Yeah, I've been really fascinated uh, when I have talked to kids or done classes for for kids online a few times now, and they are so much more adaptable to that dynamic than than I am. I mean, even just a month and a half ago, I literally did not know what Zoom was. And the first mm-hmm. time I saw Zoom was when I could still be in person with somebody. Uh, I was doing a master class, and one student uh, was out of town and wanted to join via Zoom. And somebody said, does anyone have Zoom on their phone? Can they just turn it on? I'm like, what is Zoom? I, I don't know what that is. Um, so yeah, it's it's really incredible. I was just doing a class yesterday where the teacher who was leading was, you know, asking questions of the kids and just the just the most mundane things that you don't think about. Like how do you raise your hand now in this world when we're all in boxes to ask a, to answer a question or to ask a question? We use the chat window, of course. And I constantly forget to even look at the chat window to see if anything is happening. You know, just things like that have truly been both awesome to see and exhausting a little bit at times <laughs> for me to have so much change and learn so many new things at once. But I agree. I think the positive things that we're learning are going to stick with us and and build uh, in ways that we can't even imagine yet. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think Zoom is not just an app. It's a way of life. That's, oh, that's it's a, my new slogan. You should do their commercials. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, I've I'll, you know I own a Mazda, and you know the Zoom 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 is their <laughs> motto. Of course, I've wondered when are we going to finally see Mazda and Zoom pair up and do a commercial together. <laughs> well, why don't you work coming. on that? Let us know how that goes for you. Michael, can, I'll pitch it to both. Michael can give you some Final Cut Pro advice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, putting aside for a moment the current COVID nineteen crisis and all the social distancing that we're experiencing and the new norm. It's no secret that there's enormous uh, social and political discord in the world right now as well, and here in the United States. And your father, Isaac, famously spent time in China, Russia, many other places, um, especially at the height of the Cold War. What are the cultural frontiers in music right now, and, and where can we make an impact as musicians along this front, do you think? Well, that's... That the answer to that question, not that I profess to have <clears throat> a comprehensive one or even a good one, does touch on something which I've been thinking about more and more. Because you cannot escape the fact, without stupidly pointing fingers or laying blame, because viruses are what they are and they spread throughout the human family with no regard for borders, but there is a connection to the spread of this virus and globalization. 
I mean, we were already connected in 1918. We're certainly more connected now. And look what has happened in the last eight, ten weeks. That accessibility across the globe has changed completely. What does that mean for us in terms of cultural diplomacy or in terms of understanding or in terms of service? I think, and this has been on my mind for a very long time, but I think what I'm grappling with and a lot of my colleagues and friends are having exactly the same conversations. What is our world going to look like? What are our habits going to look like when all of this is over? We were so used to hopping on a plane and going to Europe for a week or going to China for a week or crossing the, the continent for three concerts and coming back for one concert. I come to Kansas City for two weeks. I go somewhere else for a week. I'm home for five days. I go somewhere else. That's all stopped. I mean, overnight it stopped. Will travel come back? Of course it will. But will it come back in the same way? I don't think so. This could have a silver lining. More and more, the idea of globalization in music was seen as um, a desired goal, right? So you were not successful in China unless you played in Carnegie Hall. No American musician would not want to play in London or Paris, and so forth and so on. In the old days, and now I'm speaking selfishly from my perspective as a conductor, because I think a music director of an orchestra, first and foremost, has to be with the music and about the music. But if you are privileged enough to have the opportunity to work with great people and to serve a community, then you have to take that seriously. In many places, that doesn't happen. I think in Kansas City, which has made me incredibly proud and happy, that did happen. But in the old days, Everyone was that. Leonard Bernstein was about New York. He did a fair amount of globetrotting. Fritz Reiner was about Chicago. George Zell was about Cleveland. Eugene Ormandy was about Philadelphia. And the communities in which those orchestras lived understood the value of music and the value of the orchestras. And the orchestra served an incredible role in bringing music, especially to young people. That was the world that my father grew up in, that was the world where music was in a golden time. Now, yes, there was less competition for leisure time, for there was less immediacy of both gratification and just plain noise because of technology. But we have the opportunity now to come back to basics in a way, or forced as we are to reconnect with our local communities, those communities could be hugely benefited. And I don't think that's a terrible thing. There are people who are going to have to make huge adjustments. There, there are people who really make their living only in a gig economy doing very high-flying and high-profile gigs in a lot of places. But again, I come back to what I said earlier. If you're a musician and first and foremost you're connected with music, then there is always a way to bring the service of music, the joy of music, and the act of faith that performing music is out into the world, even if you can't take an airplane. And I think that's something really important. My father was heavily involved in cultural diplomacy. You're right. He was the first artist invited to go to the Soviet Union. He didn't have the idea only to go, but it, it made sense. He having been born there, 
come to America, was an American citizen from the age of 10 months old, now to go back, that made sense. He was invited to go to China. He did a lot of teaching in Switzerland, in Japan, at Carnegie Hall. He had this abiding belief that young people were the future and music was the way he was going to make his mark on the minds of those young people. But if he couldn't travel, I think he'd be doing exactly the same thing. And in fact, in his home city of New York, and even when he went home, I say it in quotation marks because he wasn't really born in San Francisco, but he grew up in San Francisco, so he considered it his second home or first home, whichever you... Uh, he was really connected with the communities where he... He never for forgot that. And I think that's, that's, that's a lesson. That's why my family wanted to honor him, not because we were bound to filial duty or because, you know, we wanted to showboat. On the contrary, I think in our time, recognizing that kind of devotion to music and that kind of abiding respect for what the power of music could be deserves celebration. You know, you mentioned that we canceled a lot of concerts. We canceled most of them. Maybe postponed is a better word. We <laughs> postponed them. There you go, yeah, postponed. But um, it doesn't change the affectionate thought that my brother, my sister, and I have in having forged this project. We have things going on, or were going on, and now digitally going on all over the world for him and in his memory to keep the legacy alive, not to honor the person, but really what he represents. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, is there anything coming up or happening digitally that, that we could check out? Or Well, we are working very hard on getting all the things that were happening live <laughs> to come digitally. Good. Um, my, my brother, who lives in Paris, had a whole slew of activities at the Philharmonie, uh, I think with the Orchestre National as well as the Orchestre Paris. All of that is going online. And we just heard from um, Radio France, the big radio network, uh, in France, that they're going to start broadcasting uh, for him when his birthday month of July gets closer. There was an entire week of celebration for him at Tanglewood. Um, hopefully we can salvage some of that. We do have a great website, which is full of information. We're trying to put stuff up on that site all the time. But here's the thing, you know, we didn't have the idea to do this in any kind of a showboating way, right? So the fact that we lost a lot of these opportunities for public events doesn't change either the intent or what we hope will be the lasting effect of simply remembering in the hearts and minds of people who played with him, who loved him, who studied with him, but also of people who just remember what he represented to them about music, that that will continue. I mean, it's, I could think of no one thing that he would, that would make him happier than to know that he was still able to bring some good in the world through music and that people were having a good time doing it. And that makes me feel really good. Well, we've had such an awesome conversation here, Michael, but uh, we can't legally uh, let you go back to your uh, social isolation there without <laughs> asking you a couple of very important questions. So number one is, first of all, of course, what is your drink of choice? But I want to add to that a bit as well, since we've been talking about your father. Uh, so we want to know not only what was your drink, what is your drink of choice, but what was your father's beverage of choice as well? <laughs> ah, um, a large question. So <laughs> my, I, as I have said before, I 
I'm I'm really a vodka drinker, right? All my all my grandparents were Russian. I, I, my standard line is that vodka. Growing up, I thought vodka was one of the four basic food groups. So um, I, you know, but I do like a single malt. And in fact, Mike, you and I have shared single malts. <laughs> Um, oh, we have. That's true. <laughs> we have. Um, and I know that Jason is an avid bourbon expert, and I've shared some rather fine sipping bourbons with him. I like, I did not like them um, for a very long time, but I really like old fashions. Mm. And I like, I like the setup. I don't drink to drink. I drink to drink, right? So you, it's it's more this, in other words, you don't just want like... Get the bottle that's closest and just pour a large glass. Oh, yeah. You want okay. you the the idea of uh, taking the time to invest even just a couple of seconds into making a drink nicely is a nice ritual. It also limits how much you drink, which is helpful. The second thing is um, my father was a great wine lover, so in all the places where he lived, once he got a certain of to be a certain age and with a certain stature, he had. A very nice collection of wine. Um, that said, he made what was laughingly called among his in his circle a sternini, which was a martini with a with a couple of twists. And I have to say, I mean, I, I didn't drink it growing up, obviously, but when I was in early in early adulthood, I found this drink completely undrinkable. First of all, it was so strong. It was there was so much gin in it. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was, I'll just say it, it was rot gut, actually. So <laughs> it was, I, it, but he, he was, and he would make it for people at parties and, and, you know, then all conversations stopped about 20 minutes in because people were snoozing <laughs> underneath the table. <laughs> it was hard. I should say that that, what I just said was a lie because in, in my house growing up, conversation never stopped. And in fact, it was nonstop verbal gymnastics all the time which probably explains at least in part why i am who i am <laughs> i have to add right here that um michael and and jason recently made some hilarious and and insightful and wonderful videos um making um some of their favorite cocktails and uh, i will add those to our uh, our recommended listening <laughs> and watching i think um, for this week, because they were pretty amazing. And there's a surprise in Jason's that I will leave for all of you. There's a surprise in Michael's too. Well, <laughs> Michael's I love. I love your your end your end uh, suggestions. Like if you don't want to make this, you know, you have a quick and easy um, don't give it away recipe, away. which yeah. I have to tell you as a mother of two small children at home all the time, that would be my go-to, <laughs> just for sure. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I haven't seen the video yet, but I, I can't wait to. Although I will say uh, that I know uh, for a fact, Michael, that uh, you will go to great lengths and great heights for a bottle <laughs> of Angostura bitters if uh, if the moment absolutely demands it. Your your commitment there is, is uh, honorable. So uh, one last thing we have to ask you as well. While you're having your old-fashioned or your single malt or your vodka or your sternini, if you were able to share a nice stirred sternini with uh, Mr. Beethoven, 
What would you want to ask Beethoven? I would ask him about process. I think about this all the time because, so I, I don't want to give too long an answer, but the way I was really trained in music was through species counterpoint. And if you approach the study of music with that in the background, there are all sorts of other things which are important. All the surface stuff is important and the emotional content is important, technical requirements, all that. But if you look at a piece as an arc and there's, a, there's an organizing harmonic principle to it and, 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 and an architecture to it, um, certainly in Beethoven's time, among others, um, then the question I would have relates to how, because he clearly believed that, whether he could identify that's what he, the way he heard music or not, it doesn't matter. It's clearly the way he and Mozart and Bach and Mendelssohn and Schubert, they all wrote that way. But we know that Mendelssohn and much more famously Mozart would, and they would often write this in their letters, they would write a piece in, or they would work on a piece and they would say, Oh, I have a wonderful, like Mendelssohn, perfect example. He was writing his violin concerto. I have a wonderful idea for the concerto. There's this tune that's in my head in E minor, and I already see the ending. All right? So in sort of one gesture, they've now all they're doing is, is scribbling, right? They're just, mm -hmm. as a vessel, letting it come out of them. Mozart famously in his uh, manuscripts didn't have a single crossout, Right? He's perfect across the board. Beethoven's hand, manuscripts are illegible because he was constantly crossing out, changing. And we know when he got to Vienna, when he had left Bonn, he was walking around with his sketchbooks. And in fact, the study of the sketchbooks can be very insightful into understanding the final results of what he came up with. You know, you look at the sketches for some of the symphonies, it's incredibly revealing. And he's playing with tiny decisions, you know, a, a two-part repetition of a four-bar phrase, taking a, a rhythmic displacement in the phrase, and he's constantly questioning himself and working it out, and yet, and yet, it sounds like it's effortless and in one gesture, just the way Mendelssohn and Mozart did it. So I would be really, was it, was it, I would be really curious to ask him if he would have the time, because he was famously cranky and wouldn't probably even listen to me uh, or take my question. But let's just say he did. I would be interested to know what that process for him really was about because you don't hear the struggle in the music. You, we know from Bruckner that he was famously self-doubting and when friends, acquaintances, I don't know, the cleaning lady would say, well, I think it should be an F sharp, he would revise the whole symphony. That's why there are 17 <laughs> versions for every symphony. Beethoven, you don't see the struggle. You don't, you don't feel it, right? I and, and he wrote, the other thing why that's important is because he was always reinventing himself, unlike other composers. So young Beethoven, middle Beethoven, late Beethoven, when he wrote for a string quartet as opposed to the piano, as opposed to the orchestra, he's wearing so many different, I wouldn't say musical hats, but musical um, affects, right? He's, he's, how did he do that? And how did he work that out? And then at the end of the piece... There it is. That's fascinating to me. Hmm. Also, why did he settle on, was it 11 or 9 coffee beans? He always, he had the, or 37, <laughs> I can't remember the number. It was a lot more than that, but it's like but 60 it was, or 70 somewhere. But it was a specific yeah. number and he counted them out before. I wanted to know where, where was that 
Mishigas coming from. That was a little crazy. <laughs> All right. This has been an awesome conversation. And as you know, we like to leave each of you this week with uh, some recommended listening. And I've already said I promise to post the links to Michael and Jason's um, drink making videos. And you'll find that on our website, kcsymphony.org. Another link I would like to put up there and and make accessible is um, Life's Virtuoso, which is a documentary about Isaac Stern. It's narrated by Meryl Streep. There are um, wonderful uh, cameos and interviews with all sorts of tremendous artists that Michael, I think, got got to grow up with and uh, hear around and see around the house and the and the concert hall. And um, this was one of those screenings that we actually did get to um, to do before everything closed down. And um, we we had an audience in the Hellsberg Hall with us, and Pincus Zuckerman was there, and it was just a really amazing conversation between Michael and and Pinky at the at the end of the film. And uh, I just recommend that everybody have a watch. Well, I usually don't like CDs or albums that are a potpourri of lots of different one movement from this, one movement from that. But one of my favorite uh, CDs, and I started recently listening to it again is Isaac Stern's My First 79 Years, which I believe goes along with the book, the autobiography of the same title. And it has many different movements from concertos, from chamber music, with some of those friends that you just mentioned, Stephanie. And it really just shows off the brilliance of his playing and his personality. And I've been listening to that very much so the last week, especially before uh, we recorded today's podcast. Think of it sort of as um, going to a prefix 15-course meal, and every single course is absolutely delicious. <laughs> Isaac Stern, my first 79 years. Well, I was uh, rummaging through the internet. I mean, there are so many amazing videos, even just on YouTube, of uh, Isaac Stern uh, playing with you know all the luminaries of the last century, uh, I remember. And I couldn't find it today. I've seen a really uh, beautiful video of him playing, Michael, was it? Was it Brahms double or Beethoven triple with you conducting and yo-yo and... And many acts. Beethoven many. triple. That Beethoven was, triple, yeah. Yeah, that was for his 70th birthday. Oh, okay. Well, I couldn't in, find in it London. today, but that's out there. Um, but the recording I was going to recommend today uh, was this really, really beautiful one, uh, old. It's in it's in black and white, so I'm not sure exactly when or where it's from, but it's it's uh, just Isaac Stern alone playing uh, the Bach Chacon. And, you know, Michael said earlier in the podcast that, you know, fundamentally this all starts with the music and and listening to him play the Bach Chacon is, I think, really everything you need to know about him as a, a performer, a musician, a person in one recording, and uh, it's incredibly beautiful to listen to. So I recommend that, and we'll put the link uh, in the show notes. Well, I really appreciate what you guys are all saying about about my dad. I will I will close with this because um, he would have been 100 on July 21st of this year, and so in July, Sony Classical, which is the label that he recorded for all his life, it was Columbia Records before Sony, is putting out a I think 75 disc retrospective of his recordings and so my brother and I were revisiting some of these things and going over and I I grew up with this sound in my head right it, it I never could do it on the violin the way he did obviously but the way he verbalized the way he vocalized well actually verbalized is a better word always um, emphasized to me I mean it, 
the idea that music is a language, is, is a communicative human language, is not an original thought. But with him, you never heard playing, you heard someone speaking. And, and I think about this all the time because one of his famous phrases that he told everybody was, don't use music to play the violin, use the violin to play music. And as I was listening to these recordings, these things which I've known since, since I was five, the recording that he made with George Zell of the Mozart A Major Violin Concerto, Kirschel 219. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement. Even the orchestra playing, the balance, the, it's just heart-stopping. But the slow movement, or the very opening of the slow introduction to the first movement, the way no note takes for granted anything technical. You never hear vibrato. If it weren't there, you'd know it. But it's always informing the intent behind the note, the intent behind the sound. Um, I listened again to a couple, he recorded it a few times in, in a couple of famous live recordings, but in the Mendelssohn Concerto, the bridge between the end of the second movement into the third movement. Now, there's a wonderful recording with Lenny Bernstein, which was tremendous on Mount Scopus. Uh, when at the end of the Six Day War, 1967. But um, no matter when he played that, that bridge sounds like somebody is affectionately whispering a story to you. And that really, I miss. There are, it, there are so many wonderful players in the world right now. Um, and the level of talent he would be the first to admit is higher than it ever was when he was alive, even with Yasha Haifetz still being the gold standard. But that kind of personal communication you really hear in recordings like that. The Brahms sextets that he made um, towards the end of his life with Yo-Yo Ma and Jamie Laredo and, and, uh, and Jimmy Lin. And just really incredibly communicative playing. And as I was, you know, tasked with going through some of these recordings and listening again... Uh, it made me smile all over again. It really, it's a lovely memory to, to have close to my heart. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to talk with us today. And um, I know it's going to be a little while to we're able to give performances again and see each other in person, but cert we all certainly miss you and we look forward to seeing you on the podium again and hearing wonderful performances by our, our Kansas City Symphony. I wish everybody well. I wish them well. I will everybody should be safe and I miss you all and I can't wait to be back doing what we love best. Thanks, Michael. Well, in our next episode, we will be talking to our good friend and principal horn of the Kansas City Symphony, Albert Suarez. Albert's going to be telling us why the horn is not only the greatest of all the orchestral instruments, that's right, Mike Gordon, even better than the flute, but why it's so darn difficult as well. We're going to have some fun playing our very own version of Around the Horn with Albert next week on Beethoven Walks into a Bar. 